0: You can hear great. That's good, Andy. That's good. Well, it's good to see you here on uh, this first Sunday of our Advent season. For all of you uh, Christian calendar nerds, you may know that this is actually not the first Sunday of uh, the Advent season. Uh, It will be next Sunday, but we're so excited we're starting this Sunday. So maybe some of you are kind of like that, you're champing at the bit uh, to get going for Christmas. Anybody here already got their Christmas tree? Uh, Did I hear a boo out there? Who booed? (laughs) Well, I'm one of those ones that also got got their Christmas tree already, uh, getting all decorated. It's a wonderful time of the year. Um, It is loaded with meaning. Um, it's a season where we both are longing with excitement to celebrate. We're also very attuned, though, to the brokenness of the world, and we are mindful that a Savior had to come into this world's brokenness, and we still are living in a broken world, waiting for His second coming. So with both, it's a season of wonderful celebration, but also deep longing. And uh, so it's a season loaded with meaning. Um, this season, for the the uh, next five gatherings worship gatherings in uh, November and December here. We're gonna be doing a mini teaching series uh, that we're calling Fulfilled. And it really uh, hones in on this theme in the book of Matthew, that when you read through Matthew again and again, this theme comes out, that Jesus came and in his life, uh, in his death and his resurrection, he fulfilled what the Old Testament prophets foretold. And we're, we're gonna consider why this is so important to understand Jesus as the fulfillment. Um, now, our first text this morning is going to be from Matthew chapter 1, uh, verses 18-25. through 25. I'm going to invite you all to stand with me. Uh, the words will be on the screen behind me. I'm going to read these uh, verses, and then I will say the word of the Lord. You can respond, thanks be to God, and then I'll pray for us, and after that you can sit down. Uh, Matthew 1, 18-25. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. The word of the Lord. Be to God. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful uh, that you are a God uh, who has come to us and for us and to be with us uh, in the person of Jesus Christ. Thank you for stepping into history and uh, doing so in a way that was at great cost to yourself. And thank you that you're a God who still comes for us, uh, Lord, by your word, by your Holy Spirit. And we invite you to come this morning. Uh, Would you come and teach us? Would you come and minister to our hearts and our minds? Uh, Would you come and deliver us, uh, Lord, from our sin? And God, I pray that you'd be using uh, this time this morning to shape us to become more like your son, Jesus Christ. So Lord, please work among us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a seat. Well, I'm guessing many of you here this morning uh, are uh, somewhat familiar with the story that was just read uh, from Matthew chapter 1, um, the birth of Jesus Christ, and uh, we are honing in this morning uh, on the virgin birth. Uh, th- this is a key part of uh, the Christmas narrative, and this narrative begins with looking at the character of Mary, uh, Mary who it said was betrothed to Joseph. Now, not, we don't know this for sure, but in all likelihood, given the norm of the day, Mary would have been a very young teenage girl. Um, that was just the norm in that culture, a very young uh, betrothed to be married. And that word betrothal, uh, it's kind of like engaged, but uh, with a lot more teeth behind it. Uh, it's a binding engagement. It has legal status. Uh, when you're betrothed, uh, you are considered husband and wife. In all ways except for sexual intimacy. And so Mary is betrothed to her husband, Joseph. I'm sure for her, this was a season of great excitement um, as she looked forward to their uh, life together. She's probably thinking about uh, the the home they will have, the children they will have. Um, She's, I'm sure, very excited in this season, anticipating her coming wedding. And then it says, uh, she is found to be with child. And you can imagine um, what a shock this would have been to everyone, but mostly to her. Uh, she is found to be with child. Um, her husband, Joseph, you can imagine what's going through his mind as he comes to realize this. You know, what is going on? Uh, Mary claims this is from the Holy Spirit. Uh, can I believe her? Well, what's happening here? And so you have this really tense situation with Mary and Joseph. And it says that Joseph, being a just man was unwilling to put her to shame, but resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, it's really fascinating. This is kind of an aside from the morning teaching, but it's a really interesting description of Joseph, him being a just man. Um, we did a teaching series this past spring from Micah 6.8 uh, where we see uh, God's instructions that the Lord requires of people to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly. We see those three things are required of God, or from God, of people. And we we commented in that that teaching series how um, notoriously complex the biblical view of justice is and how it doesn't fit neat and cleanly into a lot of our modern understandings of justice. That some people focus on the retributive aspect of justice. That is, people need to get what they deserve. The punishment should fit the crime, the retributive side of justice. Others really focus on the restorative side of justice. We need to figure out the causes that lead to injustice in our society and remedy those causes, retributive, restorative. But in the Bible, they go together and are even more complex than that. uh, It says that Joseph, being a just man, was unwilling to put her to shame, but resolved to divorce her quietly. You see, he wants to do what is right in the kindest way possible. That's biblical justice. And we see Joseph as this wonderful picture of biblical justice. But after he had made this decision, an angel of the Lord appears to him in a dream and tells Joseph that the child within Mary is from the Holy Spirit. Now, what's amazing to me is that Joseph does not just chalk this up to a dream. He knows this is from the Lord, and he believes the word of the Lord, and he takes Mary... um, to be his wife, and then it says he, but he knows her not. There's no sexual intimacy until after the baby has been born, and then we get the line that we're focused on in, ver- in Matthew one22 through twenty-three. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now 15 times in the book of Matthew, that word fulfill is used. It's a theme in the book of Matthew. Um, And then in the the birth account, that word is brought up numerous times. Matthew talks about how um, Jesus is fulfilling scripture as he grows up in Nazareth. The prophets foretold that the Messiah would come from that region. He goes on to say that uh, Jesus is fulfilling scripture when he comes out of Egypt. He was a refugee for a time in Egypt. And when he comes from Egypt, he is fulfilling what the prophets foretold. Uh, Even the horrific events that led Jesus to have to go to Egypt as a young child. Um, There was a mass, um, really, terror event. A slaughter of hundreds of innocent babies. And that event was foretold. So all of these events are fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. But here, what we're focused on today is the fulfillment of, of what the Old Testament prophet Isaiah foretold, that the virgin will conceive. The virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Now, this comes from Isaiah chapter 7. We're not going to look at that that chapter now on the screen. But in Isaiah 7, if you go there even this week and read through that chapter, it's fascinating because the prophet Isaiah is speaking to the king of Judah, King Ahaz. And he's talking to him about a problem in their day, about their uh, relationship with the nation of Assyria and how Assyria was going to come in and conquer um, uh, the nation of Judah, but how God would eventually deliver his people. So it was a present problem um, for King Ahaz in those days. And uh, in their conversation, God prompts Isaiah to tell Ahaz, Something went wrong, please try again. Well now, we will try that again. I've never been spoken to by Siri in the middle of a sermon. What are you going to do? All right. I was going to say the prophet says ask for a sign, but uh, it was not that kind of sign. All right. <laughs> so Isaiah says to Ahaz, uh, ask God for a sign uh, that all this will happen, and Ahaz says, I can't do that. I don't want to presume upon the Lord. Uh, but God says, I myself will then give you a sign, and then all of a sudden we are jumping hundreds of years because the sign is the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. You think, what does this have to do with, uh, with Assyria and Israel hundreds of years prior? And so to understand all this, we need to do a little bit of a, of a theological triage, all right? So strap your, uh, your theological belts on here. We're gonna understand a few things about fulfillment when it comes to the scriptures. Um, the ESV Study Bible has a very helpful study note on this passage explaining that there are three layers of fulfillment when you're understanding biblical prophecy and how it's interpreted in New Testament times. Uh, The first layer of fulfillment is direct prediction fulfillment. All right, it's the first layer, direct prediction fulfillment. Um, An example of this would be, um, it was prophesied that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, Um, that he would come from Galilee, that he would come up out of Egypt. And those exact things happened. All right, so the prophet foretold he will, uh, he will come from these places, and it exactly happened. That's direct prediction fulfillment. Um, you know, back when I was in high school, uh, great, great cinematic masterpiece came out, Back to the Future, all right? Any, any Back to the Future fans here? Any, we, ex- excellent, all right. So in Back to the Future, which the first one I thought was great, and it kind of went downhill in the series after that, but the second of the Back to the Series films, Uh, finds Marty going to the future, and in the future, all of a sudden, his nemesis Biff had become uh, quite wealthy and powerful because Biff had gotten in the time machine and gone back, all right, to the past, found the sports almanac and brought it to the future. Therefore, when he bet on sports games, he already knew the outcome. There was a direct prediction fulfillment because he had in his book what exactly would happen. And so everyone, you could sense here that something beyond coincidence is taking place in these, uh, in Biff's betting scheme. And something more than coincidence is taking place when we read all the Old Testament prophecies and see direct fulfillment in Jesus Christ. There's no way this could just happen randomly. It's way, way too much of a coincidence that all of these things prophesied hundreds of years prior would take place in the person of Jesus Christ. And what this is showing is that God is sovereignly at work writing this script. That God is letting us know this is not just happenstance. He has planned all along to redeem people through Jesus Christ. The prophecies let us know that. That God is the author of this story. Now that is enough for us to understand about fulfillment but there's far more. There's even better things to understand. See, the second layer of fulfillment is the intended full meaning of the Old Testament scripture. That sometimes when we're understanding fulfillment, it's not just direct events being predicted and then taking place. There's a fuller understanding, a fuller meaning that is being revealed. Um, If a parent's intentions for their child are fulfilled as they grow up, it isn't about direct prediction fulfillment as if a parent has predicted every event that will transpire in their child's future. But they have intentions and purposes that want their children to turn out a certain way. And when those are fulfilled, it is wonderful. And in a similar way, God has plans and intentions for his creation. And in the Old Testament, you begin to see these hinted at, that God intends to deliver his people. And most often in the Old Testament, God's people think that they mostly need to be delivered from the enemy nations of the world. Um, It was kind of hidden that the deeper deeper rescue that was needed was from our sin. And so this is being kind of brought out in full display in the person of Jesus Christ, this full unpacking of all that God intended for his people. So we see that layer of fulfillment when we come to Matthew 1. But there's a third layer of fulfillment. And this one is a little more complex. It is divinely orchestrated typology of Israel's history. All right, it's a mouthful. Let me unpack this here. God has always worked through people. This is how God has chosen to work. When he creates the world, he creates people. And to Adam and Eve, he gives them a task. He wants them to to rule and to govern this this earth Uh, according to his intentions. God is planning to work through people. And through Adam and Eve, he would care for and bless the world. But we know how that story goes. Uh, They fail at their task, but God does not fail them. He continues to want to work through people. And he begins to really focus his efforts on a particular people. Uh, He speaks to Abraham. And he says that through you, through your family, all nations will be blessed. He intended to work through Abraham and his people to bless the world, that the Jewish people were to be a light to the nations. But we see all through the Old Testament storyline that again and again and again, this family falls short of God's intentions, that God wants them to be a light to the world and they fail at that. So what we see in the person of Jesus is that Jesus fulfills everything that Israel was supposed to be. Jesus is the true Israel. He is the second Adam. He he is the one we ultimately have been waiting for. It's through Jesus that God's light is going to the nations. And so we can see that in these fulfillment accounts, uh, everything that Israel was supposed to be happening in the person of Jesus. So all three of these layers of fulfillment are taking place in this Matthew 1 account. And as we begin to get our minds around all that is being fulfilled, a couple things happen. One, we start having greater confidence that Jesus really is um, the intended Messiah, the one God had promised. Also, we find ourselves wondering and marveling at uh, his greatness and his goodness. And I I pray that happens today, that we'll find our hearts stirred by how Jesus has fulfilled what the prophets foretold. So, that said, let's dig into the fulfillment, all right? Uh, What is being fulfilled or what is being revealed uh, in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Now, i got to say, I've never preached a sermon just on the virgin birth, all right? This is a little bit new for me. Maybe this for you too. It is um, captivating as we dig into all that God intends for us here. I want to consider three things this morning, what, the, what is being revealed in the virgin birth of Jesus. First, the virgin birth reveals God to us. The virgin birth reveals God to us. You see, the scriptures tell us that ever since Adam and Eve, uh, human beings have been born with a sin nature. Um, This means that no parent has to teach their child to lie, to teach their child to throw a temper tantrum, or to teach their child to assert their own will over another. Um, That comes naturally to all of us because of what the scriptures teach us, that we're all born with a sin nature. Um, Our denomination, the Evangelical Free Church of America, uh, I put out a statement a few years back on uh, human sexuality that actually captures this idea really well. Um, In this statement, uh, uh, it says, everything from our environment to our bodily genetic code has been ravaged by sin in the fall. Everything from our environment to our bodily genetic code has been ravaged by sin in the fall. This means that we are all born to a degree with brokenness. Um, And we can see this naturally, that certain people are born with a certain tendency. um, There are things in our DNA that make someone more prone to cancer. There's a brokenness physiologically within DNA. Um, But it's not only in the realm of our DNA uh, physically. This is a spiritual reality. We are all born with sin proclivities meaning we all have unique ways in which we are tending towards what is wrong. That's what a sin nature is. Uh, Therefore, we all think that sin is actually right and good. If we do what comes natural, we do what God says is wrong. That's what the sin nature is. And we all naturally follow this sin nature. Jesus' virgin conception What it signals here is that a new chapter in human history has begun. Jesus is a new kind of human being. Everyone prior, everyone prior naturally followed the outworkings of their sin nature. And in Jesus, something new has entered the world. The language of Jesus' conception is striking. Um, The angel told Joseph that what was in Mary was from the Holy Spirit. Uh, and then in the Luke 1 account, in Luke one thirty-five, of the same story, we read, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born to you will be called Holy, the Son of God. See, this child that was conceived in Mary of the Holy Spirit is a new kind of creation. Not through Uh, natural conception between two humans, but through a supernatural conception by the Spirit. Now, it's not as though Jesus did not exist prior. Jesus is eternal, eternally part of the triune God. But as a human being, this is a new creation. And a new creation is needed because humanity has shown that we cannot solve the problems of humanity by repeating the same tired solutions. Uh, essentially, what humanity attempts to do from the very beginning is that it hum- humans attempt to reach up to God. We, we try to do our best to become better humans, individually and corporately. We reach up in our attempts at education. We reach up in at our attempts at religion. We re- reach up in our attempts at moral uh, goodness. And what we see is that no, every generation, no matter how hard they try to reach up, still falls down. I mean, we are still looking at our world today that is profoundly broken. We still see rampant selfishness, uh, rampant greed, rampant deceit. I mean, all manner of evil just continues, generation after generation after generation. Humanity's attempts to reach up have failed horribly. Horribly. So what we see in Jesus in the virgin birth is that God has reached down. God has himself come down to humanity. Um, in Matthew uh, 1, and 23, when he was quoting the prophet Isaiah, when he says the prophet wrote, behold, a virgin will conceive, he, he actually did not quote the first part of the statement found in Isaiah 7, verse 14. Uh, let me read that for you, Isaiah 7, 14. We read there, that therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. That first part there, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Um, what, What God is saying is, I will do this myself. I will come myself. The problems of humanity cannot be solved by human beings. There must be a solution from outside to come into our world. And that's what we see in the virgin birth. It's a solution from outside humanity that has come in. In the virgin birth, God has come to us. That's what's first being revealed in the virgin birth. Secondly, in the virgin birth, what is being revealed is that the virgin birth reveals God for us. Not only has God come to us, we see that God is for us. Um, now, the virgin birth, I, I don't think we can get our heads around how scandalous it was. You know, we may think today, centuries later, we may think of the virgin birth in terms of reverence, you know, stained glass pictures of Mary with a halo over her head and a, you know, a little baby that never cries. We, think, we look at that scene and that is not the case at all. Um, Jesus' conception was not viewed with reverence in his day. Everyone, actually, kind of like whispered about it. And everyone assumed scandalous things about his conception. And we see that this reputation continued with Jesus even into adulthood. Uh, In Mark 6.3, we have an account of Jesus returning to Nazareth, his hometown, and how the people interacted with him. It says that then they scoffed. He's just a carpenter, the son of Mary and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and his sisters live right here among us. They were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. You hear that phrase there? He's just a carpenter, the son of Mary. It's not the son of Joseph or the son of Joseph and Mary, the son of Mary. Most scholars believe that this right here is people saying, um, they're, they're bringing up the rumor about Jesus' conception. They don't believe that Jesus is conceived of the Holy Spirit. They think that he was conceived illegitimately. And this is a way of them bringing that up once again, 30 years later, bringing up this, this, what they think is a a situation of disrepute for Jesus. See, what we see here is that God did not avoid the appearance of evil in becoming human. God did not avoid the appearance of evil in becoming human. Some of you who have been Christians for quite some time may recognize that phrase, avoid uh, all appearance of evil. It comes from 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 22. Um, Now, it's a verse that parents love to use when they want their kids not only to not do what is wrong, but not hang around those who who do what is wrong. Avoid those kind of people. Unfortunately, that's not what the verse actually says. Only in the King James Version do we get that phrase, avoid all appearance of evil. Um, It's more correctly translated, abstain from all forms of sin. Don't sin in any way. Don't ever sin. That's God's intention for us. Don't do what is wrong. You see, Jesus did a horrible job avoiding the appearance of evil. A horrible job of it. On purpose. It's why he came. In the virgin birth, God purposely identified himself with sinful humanity without sinning himself. He took on a reputation that he did not earn. He took on a sin identity that others perceived, but actually he had not sinned himself. This is what Jesus has come to do, and he continued doing it his whole life. He was called a drunkard and a glutton, though he was not, but that's who he hung out with. He was called a friend of tax collectors and prostitutes, because he was. You see, he never avoided the appearance of evil. He abstained from sin of any kind. And we see that Jesus is for us, he has come to be with us, to even take on our sin reputation. In 2 Corinthians 5, 21, and we quote this verse a lot, it said that for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And this was not just on the cross. This is what Jesus came to do in his virgin birth and then through his whole life and then ultimately in the cross, He becomes sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. God is for us. And this means that sinful people can draw near to Him. That God, who is holy and is, is without sin, has come to take our sin, to take it upon Himself. Now, human nature causes us to want to pull back and hide in our sin. That's just natural. In our shame, we don't want have, to have others see that sin. We don't want to feel the shame. And God says, Bring it to me. It's why Jesus came, to take our sin upon himself, to bear our stain and give us his righteousness. The virgin birth reveals God for us. And then lastly, the virgin birth reveals God with us. So we see God to us, we see God for us, and we see God with us. Matthew one through 22-23, I'll read it again. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now that phrase at the end there, in parentheses, which means God with us, that isn't in the Isaiah 7, 14 uh, wording. That that parentheses, that's added in by the author of Matthew. Because he wants to draw our attention to Emmanuel, to why Jesus has come. He wants us to know God with us is the point of all this. That God has come to be with us. What does this mean? How is God with us in Jesus? Well, a few ways. He's with us in that he's come to join us in our plight. So he did not remain distant. He did not remain in heaven. He could have. God had no reason to come and experience all that we experience. I mean, he came and he was born to a poor family. He uh, he took on a bad reputation. He experienced hunger and poverty and loss. He experienced it all and didn't have to. He came to be with us. Uh, but it's more than that. I mean, he also came to be with us in that he's on our side. If you tell someone, I'm with you, you don't just mean that you're always in proximity to them. You mean that you got their back. You're going to support them. And, and Jesus has come to be with us. Uh, despite our faithlessness and our sin, he is on our side. He's with us. But it's even greater than that. The far greater fulfillment of Jesus coming to be with us that the virgin birth reveals is that God is saving humanity by being born within humanity. God intends to be within us. Jesus was the first but not the last human to be born of the Spirit. 1 Peter 1.23 And this is a verse written to all who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. Now, you may have been a Christian for so long that that verse has lost its shock value. But just think about it as if you had never heard this phrase before. That to become a follower of Jesus means a second birth. You have been born again, not of perishable seed, uh, not of a temporary life, but of imperishable seed, of eternal life. The promise here is of an additional, a new life coming into fallen humanity. Now, um, these words are really echoing a conversation that Jesus famously had with a religious leader named Nicodemus. In John 3, he's talking with this religious teacher Um, and he's trying to explain to him um, this dynamic of what can happen to humanity who has become connected with Jesus Christ. And in John 3, 3 through 6, we read some of this conversation where Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. See, Jesus says everyone has a natural birth. That's born of water. We have a couple of new babies with us today. How wonderful new birth is, right? We we celebrate, we rejoice when new life comes into this world. And we all have a natural beginning. We've already identified earlier in the sermon that with that natural beginning also comes natural sin. That we are born alive physically, but dead spiritually. Therefore, a second birth is needed a birth of the Spirit, a birth that is imperishable, an additional kind of life coming into fallen humanity. And it says, apart from an additional life, we will never experience the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is God's rule and reign. All the verses, that we were, the uh, songs we were singing earlier about longing for death to be taken away, all wrongs to be made right, that's when God's kingdom is here in its fullness, and we long for that. Only those who are alive in the Spirit will see it. And That is why Jesus has come, to be born as a human so he can be born again within humanity. It is the birth that we desperately need. The fullness of God's plan to redeem humanity involves the life from God, the life from God above, coming into fallen humans. So uh, I came up with a really... Profound question in response to all this. So what? So what? We've heard this theology unpacked uh, God to us, uh, God for us, God with us. What does this matter to us today? I want to encourage you to consider two steps, two next steps to this truth. First, it's to receive the life of Jesus within you. Uh, if this is true, If what the prophet has foretold, then the scriptures testify to, is actually reality, that the life of God can be born within human beings, um, then we should receive it. That's what's held out to us. And I think we have a wonderful picture of this in the person of Mary. Um, It's amazing when you read the Luke account, how the angel comes to Mary and says, here's what's gonna happen. But then there's kind of this pause and I don't know what would have happened if Mary had said, no, we're not, we're not given that scenario. But Mary says, may it be to me as you have said. Mary says, despite all that's gonna happen and how this kind of ruins my plans for life, I want this to happen. I want the Messiah to be born in me, through me, to bless the world. Mary says, may it be to me as you have said. And it's a wonderful picture of our posture. Of We hear all of what God says we have the opportunity to say, may it be to me as you have said. May, may you be born within me. May my life increasingly become your life. Um, I love uh, the, the Christmas carol, Old Little Town of Bethlehem. has some great uh, language in there. We, uh, we often sing year after year, O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us, today. That's what's being promised. The idea that the eternal God would come to take up residence within a human life. And the question is, will we receive it? Um, Last week we had some testimonies. It was a great Sunday, uh, hearing people sharing of how God has worked stories of redemption in their lives. Uh, And in particular, um, one of the stories that was shared, uh, Mike shared, about him coming to understand, feel a all the theology, the, the intellectual understanding of the faith, but coming to a point of wondering or being prompted by the spirit, will this be yours? Will you, of your will, say yes, I confess this, I believe this? See, God brings, us to all, brings all of us to this point. Not just do we intellectually understand it, but do we want this? Do we want the life of Christ within us? So my question for you is, have you received the life of Jesus? Have you come to that point of asking Christ to come in, to cast out your sin, to enter in and be born in you? The good news is you can have that by faith in Jesus. By simply asking Jesus to come in, saying, yes, may it be to me as you have said, this new life begins. You have the opportunity today to take that step of faith. And we'll have time at the end where you can respond to God in prayer. Uh, second step, and for others of you who have responded, yes, may it be to me as you have said, the question I have for you is, are you nurturing the life of Christ within you? Uh, are you nurturing this life? I mean, just as we must tend and care for a new life that is born. I mean, we would never see this wonderful baby come into our, our, our family and just stick the baby in the room and say, good luck. I mean, we, we naturally want to tend and nourish this new life. And so we must tend to and nourish the new life within us. That, that we must begin to seek to grow. I mean, we take into our life the word of God. We learn to be around others who follow Jesus. Uh, we learn to talk to God in prayer. It's called discipleship. The, the life of Christ is growing within us. And this must become the main focus of our life. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things we added to you as well. We're so tempted to make all these things the focus of our life. We tend to treat the kingdom as kind of like the nice window dressing. Once I have all of this in place, my job, my my marital uh, status, family, you know, I'll kind of add in the kingdom of God piece. And Jesus, it's the other way around. As we make the kingdom of God our focus, everything else kind of comes through this new life. All of a sudden, our work our marriage, our family, they now become conduits of God's kingdom life in us and through us. The question is, is the kingdom central? Um, Some of you know that I I greatly appreciate an author named Dallas Willard, and he has a uh, a quote um, unpacking this reality. It's a longer quote, I encourage you to bear with me, but it's really helpful. Uh, Dallas writes this in his book, Hearing God. He says, the the person who has been brought into the additional life by the creative action of the word of God now lives between two distinct realms of life and power, that of the natural or fleshly and that of the supernatural or spiritual. Even while dead in sins and unable to interact constructively with God, we are still capable of sensing the vacuum in the natural life apart from God and of following up on the many earthly rumors about God and where He is to be found. Once the new life begins to enter our soul, however, we have the responsibility and opportunity of ever more fully focusing our whole being on it and wholly orienting ourselves toward it. This is our part, and God will not do it for us. That God is calling us, calling us to Himself to take up our cross, to follow him. These are all activities we must do in our discipleship to Jesus Christ. And there is no greater privilege in life. There is no greater privilege than for the life of Christ not only to be born in us, but to grow to maturity in us. Are you focusing your life upon this great opportunity of Christ and his life growing in you and through you? Uh, As I close in prayer here, I'm going to invite you uh, to respond in prayer with me. However God is prompting you, whether it is to receive Christ today, whether it is to surrender anew your life, or certain aspects of your life, I I encourage you to join me as we respond in prayer, and the worship team will come up while I'm praying. Let's pray together. Lord, we are so thankful uh, that you are a God who has loved us and who has come to us, who has identified with us in our sin, taken our sin upon yourself, and Lord, who is now with us by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Lord, much of this is mysterious and beyond our mind's uh, ability to to comprehend fully. Yet Lord, we are so grateful of what we can know. So Lord, I pray today, uh, Lord, I pray for all who are here. Um, Lord, you know hearts, you know minds, you know ourselves better than we know ourselves. So Lord, would you help us to realize uh, where we truly stand with you. Uh, God, I pray for those who are now contemplating, Uh, Lord, Um, asking you to be born within them. Uh, God, we do pray that even today, uh, Lord, uh, as the song says, you would descend to us and be born within us. So, Lord, thank you for your promise to cast out sin and enter in. And, Lord, for all of us, Lord, I pray you help us to grow in maturity. God, I pray you'd help us increasingly sense what an opportunity it is to have the life of Jesus Christ uh, come into us and to grow in us. I pray that increasingly um, your will, your desires, your characteristics will be evident in our lives. And we know, Lord, we need you uh, for that to be true. Um, It's not our flesh that matters, it's your spirit. So God, please accomplish in and through us what only you can do today. Uh, We are grateful and we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand to sing once again?